I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we shift into this next portion of Paul's letter to the Romans, it might be helpful just to briefly review what we've been through so far together over the last year and a half. Chapter 12 serves as a transition point in Paul's long argument but it is tightly related to everything that came before it. And so if you look in your worship guide that you got on your way in this morning, you'll notice that there is a a handout there, folded in half, double-sided. Romans is a fairly long and dense letter that covers a lot of ground. And so when we go verse by verse on Sunday mornings over the year, two years, it might be possible that we sort of lose the bigger picture of what Paul's large argument is. And so one helpful way to try to think about the bigger picture of Romans is to think about it in terms of sections. And so in this handout, we've tried to divide that. This is not the only way to do this. This is just our attempt at it. You'll see there that we've got eight major sections with some subsections underneath them. Uh, And each of those sections has a verse that represents the main idea that can be found in that section. So, let's catch up. Previously, in Romans. (laughs) Paul hasn't been able to go to Rome in person, and so he has sent this letter to this church in Rome to explain God's gospel to them and to raise awareness about his desires for a missionary journey into to Spain and to into the world. He gives his introductions. You can follow along in your hand out there to some degree. He gives his introductions, and then the body of the letter actually really starts in 116. This letter is about the gospel and its power to save both the Jew and the Gentile. He begins with the bad news, the problem of sin, as you can see it there. He speaks first about the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it's not simply unbelieving pagans who don't have uh, this, that have this problem of sin of ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's actually the Jews as well. Even though they have the law that hasn't saved them, they too have this problem of sin. And so it's everyone, not Gentiles, not just Jews, Everyone has this problem of sin. We all lack righteousness. We are all unjust. And not only that, we're all caught up in the same helpless state. We are helpless and hopeless without God and his righteousness. So how can we be made just? How can we be right in God's sight? Because if God is a good judge, he must punish unrighteousness. Well, that brings us then to the good news, God's solution for sin. God showed his righteousness by judging human unrighteousness in and through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And by faith, Christ's righteousness is credited to the one who puts his faith in Jesus. God then looks at unrighteous me and sees the righteousness 
of Christ. Purchased by Christ, applied by his spirit, we now get that righteousness that we lacked. We were helpless, we were hopeless, we were unable, we were unwilling to come to Christ, but he brings us to life and he gives us the gift of righteousness through the cross of Christ to be received by faith. And that one way of salvation through the one mediator applies to both Jews and to Gentiles. So it applies to everyone. The Jews, of course, are those Israelites, God's chosen people who descended from Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham, Paul goes on and tells us that Abraham was counted right before God by his faith because he believed God's promise to him and God counted that faith as righteousness. And so in that sense, Abraham, though he is the father of Israel, can be counted as the father of everyone who believes in God's promises, which are fulfilled in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, then, has become the true and better Adam. Adam brought sin and unrighteousness into the world through his disobedience, but Jesus brings life and righteousness into the world through his obedience. This is Romans chapter 5. Okay, if that's God's solution for sin, what does that mean for the one who has put his faith in Christ? What is our relationship then to sin and righteousness in light of the gospel? What about our ongoing battle with sin? Paul explains how Christ graciously triumphed over sin, and by our faith union with him, what is true of him becomes true of us. And so Paul gives us a, a a theology of baptism to illustrate this point. In the same way that Jesus died to sin and was raised to new life, we are buried under water and then are raised to walk in newness of life. And so his crucifixion broke the power of sin over us. What is true of him is true of us. Okay, well then what about our relationship to God's law? If God's law can't save us, what is it even for? Well, it's not to save us, that much is sure. The law reveals how broken we are. And beyond that, it actually, since we are released from the condemnation of that law, we are changing uh, our perspective and relationship to God's law so that it's not uh, a condemnation to us, but actually a guide to us. We are freed now to relate to God's law in a positive sense. So God's law becomes a guide to show us how to live Uh, in order to bring joy, in order to bring flourishing. And so as we keep our eyes on Jesus, and as we walk in his Holy Spirit, not in the sinful passions of our flesh, we are growing in our Christ-likeness. Well, the Christian life is a battle. We know that God has already won the war, but it is still a battle in the here and now. Despite what your life might look like at any given moment, God is for us. So no one of any real danger could ever be against us. He promises, Romans chapter 8, that our salvation is accomplished and applied. So despite our circumstances in this present evil age, we are as good as glorified in the world to come. Okay, well then that raises the question of how God's promises to Israel land. Well, didn't, make God, didn't God make some promises to Israel in the Old Testament? Is God upholding those promises? Can we trust the promises he's made to us? Yes, Paul's response. Through chapters 9, 10, and 11, as we walk through this last fall, Paul says we can trust God's promise. And he explained what God's promise 
word was to Israel, how they rejected his righteousness, and then how God would save them through Gentile unbelief and vice versa, that mysterious way of salvation there at the end of Romans 11, where God would bring about mercy in spite of unbelief and disobedience. God brings about mercy in spite of or even through human unbelief and disobedience. So then Paul takes a little breather. He sings a little song of doxology there at the end of chapter 11, and he ascribes God the glory that he is rightly due for his plan of salvation. So that's chapters 1 through 11. God, in his mercy, provides a solution for our sin. God, in his mercy, gives us his righteousness as a gift to be received by faith alone. God, in his mercy, makes Christ's blessings flow as far as Adam's curse is found. God, in his mercy, triumphs over the power of sin through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God, in his mercy, triumphs on our behalf over the power of the law. He gives us peace and life. God, in his mercy, promises to turn the rotten fruit of Adam's fall into a sweet spiritual harvest of righteousness in our lives, created and empowered by his Holy Spirit. God, in his mercy, promises that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is for you. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by those mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is why I suggest that the big idea of this morning's sermon from this text is this. Since God is all for you, you are to be all for him. Since God is all for you, you are to be all for him. We'll take these two verses one at a time. Verse one, in light of the gospel, all of life is worship. And then in verse two, Christians are to be intellectual nonconformists. Those will be the two points from these two verses this morning. And before we dive in, let's, let's pray and ask for help. <clears throat> Lord, open our hearts, open our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word and receive it with joy. Amen. Verse 1, point 1. In light of the gospel, all of life is worship. I'll read verse four for us one more time. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so Paul now, the apostle, is using his apostolic authority to make an appeal to his Christian audience. Another way we could say it is Paul is urging his brothers and sisters. This is not a suggestion. This really has more force to it than that. He pleads. Paul is pleading. He is urging. He is calling. He is inviting. He is imploring. 
based on the gospel, give your body as a living sacrifice. And the basis of this appeal, this urge that he's making, the motivation for the action for which he's calling is the mercies of God. Please note that. The mercies of God is the grounding of our obedience and the call to obedience. The word therefore tells us, of course, that he's giving a conclusion to all that has come before it, which we've just recapped from chapters 1 through 11. And so he says, because of what God has done for us, those mercies that he's shown us that we've just explained for those last 11 chapters, because of what he has freed you and enabled you to do, here's what your response ought to be. You are to submit your body to God as an act of worship. And we can remember from the Old Testament that Israel had a sacrificial system. And so as an act of worship in the temple, they would make atonement for their sin, at least on the Day of Atonement, once per year, blood would be shed. Life would be given. The life of the animal was dedicated to this purpose, to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of the sins of the community. Well, as you are hopefully well aware, Christians do not continue that practice. We don't do animal sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice. He is the end of that Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay, so if if that is over, if that's not how we worship God anymore, what do we do? If life and blood has been given on the cross, if everything we've ever needed for a right standing before God has already been given to us, what do we do now? We don't have holy temples anymore to go into. We don't have altars. We don't have acceptable sacrifices in that sense anymore. What do we do? Well, this is what we do. We present our bodies, our bodies, as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. The word spiritual in our English Standard Version translation could also be translated as reasonable or true worship. It is the rational response to God. Think back to the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. That whole section is describing that degrading spiral of sin. Humanity knows there is a God. Creation makes that evident to us. But in rebellious sin, humanity doesn't give thanks or acknowledge or worship God as he ought to be. They become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1.25 says this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so that irrational act of worshiping creation rather than the creator is reversed in those who have been redeemed. That foolish worship of creation is turned into the reasonable worship of the creator. That's why it's helpful to read Romans together as a whole. It is reasonable in light of God's mercies to present our bodies as a living sacrifice because life has been given for you. And that's true in two senses. Life has been given for you and to you. Jesus gave his life as the sacrifice in your place so that you don't need to give your life in that sense. But also, just as he was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father has raised you 
from being spiritually dead and given you life, allowed you, empowered you to walk in the newness of that life by his Holy Spirit. And so then, out of gratitude, empowered by that Holy Spirit, those who have been redeemed by Christ are to put that life that has been given to them to good use, to offer your body as a living sacrifice in all of life as an act of spiritual, reasonable, rational worship. Worship no longer involves temples. Worship no longer involves the shedding of blood And please note that Christian worship involves much more than music. It includes more than just hearing preaching. This is why we say that all of the Christian life is worship. This is why we specify even what we do in here. Uh, We call this gathered worship. This is not just a general worship service. This is gathered worship. And the, the goal there is to contrast it with scattered worship. We gather to worship together, and then you go scattered back out into the world with that same gospel, continuing to worship. Worship doesn't end at 12 o'clock, roughly. (laughs) We are each sent back out into the world to continue worshiping. And that also doesn't mean that when you go home, you need to hide in your prayer closet and only read scripture and listen to worship music. Now, I'm not knocking that, obviously, but we must expand our category of what worship is. Certainly, it's more than simply that. Whatever you do can be done for the glory of God. If you think that you're supposed to create holy sections of your life that are dedicated to God, you're misunderstanding the call to the Christian life. You don't need to be in full-time ministry to minister full-time, in other words. You can worship God by loving God and loving others in the most seemingly insignificant or perhaps even surprising ways. I think that's why Paul specifies the body here as the living sacrifice. Worship just isn't, isn't simply a spiritual thing that happens in the mind or in the heart. It is a physical thing that happens tangibly as well. Think about it. Paul very well have, could have just said, give your whole life as a sacrifice. And we probably wouldn't have thought anything about that. Or maybe Paul could have said, give your heart to Jesus. That's the sort of thing that we hear in the church a lot more often than give your body. People say, give your heart to Jesus. So does it seem, does it strike you as odd uh, that Paul would say, give your body as a living sacrifice? It would have been a little bit weird for the Roman audience that he was writing to. They would have been steeped in Greek philosophy that saw the body as being evil. So they might have thought, well, we we don't use our bodies for good things. We try to escape our bodies. Our bodies are not good. We're supposed to not use our bodies. That's the whole point, right? But that's contrary to the Christian view. Very explicit here in Romans 12.1. We were purposefully and intentionally created with a body by our God. We are embodied by God's design. It is not a result of the fall. Uh, It is not a temporary or unfortunate restraint upon our true identity. And this is why Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about that final resurrection of the dead being so important, focusing on the importance of the body. This is the Christian view of the body. We are a, a, 
psychosomatic union, body and soul united to create us. The body is not a prison that our soul must escape. Your body is not a car that you simply drive until it runs out of gas. Your soul is not an avatar. Your body is you. Therefore, your growth in sanctification must include your body. As one writer said, if you confess that you've given your heart to God, that is awesome. But if you think that that means you can give your hands and feet to the devil, you've been deceived. All right, well, maybe you're convinced that all of the Christian life is to be an unending act of worship. But you need help thinking through what that means for you. Well, if you are convinced that these instructions here in Romans chapter 12 are for the Christian reversal of the foolish depravity which is described for us so clearly and explicitly in chapters 1 through 3, we might be helped to go back to that section. What do the bodies of those who live in unrighteousness do? Romans chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, that's a pretty good guide then, yeah? So let's just take that, scratch it, and reverse it. That's what we should be shooting for. One who offers his body as a living sacrifice doesn't have a throat that leads to a corrupt, deadly heart, but a warm, life-giving heart. The tongue doesn't deceive, the tongue speaks truth. The lips aren't used to destroy and to harm, but to encourage and to build up. The mouth isn't filled with curses and bitterness, but blessings and sweetness. The feet don't run towards violence, all excited to throw down, but they leave a wake of peace and comfort wherever they go. Our eyes don't worship creation by turning men or women or animals into our idols, but we rightly recognize and fear God as both our creator and our redeemer. That's a pretty good guide to how we should be using our bodies as the Holy Spirit conforms us, transforms us into the image of Christ. We'll consider more of what this looks like in the coming weeks as we walk through chapters 12 and 13, 14 and 15. But for now, just realize that worshiping God with your body doesn't need to be a confusing or mystical idea. It's using your body according to the purpose for which it was created, not according to our own fallen and foolish impulses. Before we move on, please note one more time our motivation for the sacrifice. Our obedience here is not out of guilt. Our obedience is out of mercy. It is out of gratitude. It is out of joy. A life sacrificed to Christ is a life lived to the full. This is not a dour thing. This is not sad. This is not bad news. This is the good news. Our obedience is not to establish our own righteousness before God out of fear. Our obedience is not because God really needs our help. Your sacrifice is for your own good and for the good of others. Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. 
Well put, Luther. We really must take note of this because these two verses, verses one and two here in the beginning of chapter 12 are a header for everything that's gonna follow in the chapters to come. In light of God's unearned merciful grace, we are called to give our bodies in his service. An unending liturgy of life. God's justification and our union with Christ and the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit are the basis and source of our sanctification, our growing in holiness. What we are to do is based on what he has already done. I'm just trying to find a whole bunch of different ways to say it. God gave us life and now he's graciously showing us how to live with that life that he has given us. Because the gospel is true, all of life is worship. Since God is all for you, you are to be all for him. Okay, the next verse continues the thought. Verse two, Christians are to be intellectual nonconformists. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to suggest that verse two is how we do verse one. Verse 2 is how we do verse 1. You dedicate your bodies by presenting your minds to him. When you pour warm jello into a mold and you put it into the fridge, it sets up in the shape of whatever mold you've chosen. And so if you have a jello mold that looks like a star, you pour jello into that mold, you put it in the fridge, you pull it out, you take the mold off, you what what shape is the jello? Of a star. Yeah? That makes sense, okay? It conforms that jello conforms to the mold that it went into. Its surroundings decide what shape it's going to take. Now, you and I, to some degree, are like that jello. Our lives take on a certain shape based on all kinds of variables. Uh, the family that we're born into, the language that we speak, the year that we were born, we pick up the practices of the place where we are. That's why, we, that's why they say, when in Rome, they do as the Romans do. If one of our kids in our house grew up speaking French, we would be shocked because nobody in our house speaks French. Like, where does that, how did you do that? Where did that even come from? It would make no sense because that's not the culture, that's not the environment that has been shaping the language of that child. We all speak English in our house because we've been conformed to the culture that surrounds us. Uh, we're from Arizona, and so we like all of the local sports teams. For better or for worse, we root for the local sports teams. And this whole concept of being conformed in that sense is not always and in every instance a bad thing. Hopefully you see that. This is not a bad thing. It's actually unavoidable to some degree. As social creatures, we are shaped by our communities. But this verse isn't referring to morally neutral social trends or customs. Our ESV translates it as this world in verse 2. It could be more accurately translated or just alternately translated at present age. So it's not necessarily about the, the world so much as it is about a time period. It's the fallen world system of blind depravity that was described in those first three chapters. That's the world that he's talking about, that present evil age. And so this appeal 
is that we would not take on the shape of the morals and ethics of our current cultural moment. You know, those who claim to be wise but are fools because they reject God? Well, they have a mold that they would love to be able to use on you to shape your ethics, to shape your morals. And we all know, by experience, how difficult it is to break with the patterns of behavior that surround us. There are some social norms that we're all expected to be aligned with in polite society in order to function together as a group. Sometimes we call it being politically correct. Well, there's a famous sociological study uh, that took place some years ago, decades ago. They took a group of 12 people into a room and showed them a board with four lines drawn on it. The lines are all of various length. And so they went around the, the, the group and said, okay, look at those four lines and you tell me which one you think are the same size. This experiment, although it included 12 people, was really only about one person because they took 11 of those people beforehand and said, give the wrong answer. Uh, say it's the wrong line. And this last person who's going to have to go last, is, we're going to see how they respond. And so this last person is watching as person by person says it's, it's A and C when it's clearly A and D. Why are these otherwise reasonable people acting so strange? The pressure is on now. Person after person, the tension is building. What decision is he going to make? He has to decide, is he going to go with what his eyes are telling him, or is he going to conform to the opinion of the crowd? They said that in the experiment, a full third of the people that they tried it on caved into the peer pressure, gave an answer that was pretty obviously wrong because they wanted to align with their peers. If the folks that surround you act without the fear of God before their eyes, they're going to come to some very mystifying conclusions as well. They will have very different conclusions about reality and ethics and priorities, and you will be greatly tempted to fall in line with them. It takes a lot of effort to swim upstream. We can start to second-guess ourselves when it's person after person who begins to share their wrong take. And you can get to the point where you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess if you kind of squint, the phrase love is love makes sense. But we're called to be nonconformists. We must resist being passively squeezed into the molds of those who live as if there were no God. So here's how Paul puts it in Romans 1.28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That debased mind must be contrasted with the redeemed, renewed mind the renewed mind of the redeemed Christian who now sees all of reality in light of the fact that there is a creator and we are not him. There is a God who is there. We are not to conform to the debased worldview of those who reject God. It really is as simple as that. Rather, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that happens by the Holy Spirit through his revealed record for us, his revealed will, which we, of course, find in Scripture. Our minds, our intellects, 
are to be progressively changed to be more in line with Christ's reality, reality as it exists. So our whole life and worldview has to intentionally, incrementally shift away from the debased foolishness that finds significance and security in idols and toward true truth that reflects reality as it truly is. No matter how unpopular that may be. That's why Christians are to be, as R.C. Sproul put it, intellectual nonconformists. Our patterns of thinking, in some very important ways, are going to be out of line with the prevailing thoughts of this present cultural moment. We should expect that. Don't be confused by it. Okay, so we've been told we are not to let that temporary shifting value system of the world that is depraved and doesn't acknowledge God, don't let that conform you. I think there's a couple different ways to go about this. A couple different ways to react to that encouragement, admonition. First, we can either withdraw from the world's culture, we can just withdraw from it and try to keep it at arm's length. That's one option. Or second, we can think about the values of the world's culture with transformed minds so that we're equipped to neutralize it and to speak into it. I want to argue that the latter is the better of those two options. Trying to create a separation from the influence of foolish values of this evil age is a fool's errand. Uh, It is an impossible task because the influence of society isn't what makes us foolish and depraved, it's us. If we think that we can hermetically seal ourselves off in a panic room from the influence of a sinful sinful world, we've, we've fooled ourselves we would find out really quick that our greatest problems are not outside of ourselves. Our greatest problems come from inside of us. Now listen to me carefully here. Lean in here. Just because someone is a non-Christian doesn't mean they're wrong about everything. That might have been uncomfortable. Let me say it again. (laughs) Just because someone is a non-Christian doesn't mean they're wrong about everything. There are non-Christians who are drawn to values that are consistent with and actually probably owe their existence to the Christian view of life in the world. Even though they don't acknowledge God or give thanks to him, there is enough of that image of God still remaining in them that they stumble upon truth. This is why some non-Christians are really drawn towards concepts of equality and compassion and enlightenment and science and freedom, and progress, we'll find that if we slow down and carefully define those terms, there is a lot of areas of important agreement with someone who values those things. We would do well to let God, by his spirit and through his word, help us to discern what is the will of God. The word behind discern here in our ESV is to test God's truth, to test God's truth and then watch it pass the test with flying colors, to test as so to approve. It's like testing gold. If you're panning for gold and you found a a stone that you think has some gold in it, you can hold a flame to it. And if what you have found is true gold, it will begin to glow. It will brighten. 
But if what you have found is what we call fool's gold, it will start to tarnish. It will burn. It will turn black. In that similar sense, we are to test God's truth. In order to think differently, we must get a clear understanding of how people of this world or age think. And that only comes through thoughtful, difficult analysis. That we must put our minds to work. This is a call of the Christian life is to activate your brain. It's really hard to discern the, way, the world's way of thinking because we're so deeply embedded in it. It's like asking a fish to explain water. It's just hard to do. I'm so deeply embedded into it, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. And that's why we're so grateful for gifted folks who have been gifted and trained to help us in that effort. This is what we were shooting for that last semester as we were walking through Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. If you went through that study with us, you know that it takes hard work to think through all those topics, those philosophies, those issues. It's hard. There's smoke coming out of some people's brains. It is hard, absolutely. I don't apologize for it, though. Paul is telling us this is what we should do, I believe. Put your mind to work. I argue the best way that you can keep from being conformed to the world's patterns of thoughts are to, to know what they are, to be able to recognize them, to be able to discern what they are. Otherwise, it would be nearly impossible to recognize the world's influence on your way of thought. We should hold the values that we encounter in the world up to the flame of God's word and then see which parts of it glow and then see which parts of it combust and burn away. One more note. We need to be aware that the influence of godless patterns of thought don't only come from one direction. There are those who are openly, expressively opposed to God who would have us conform to their godless thoughts. I'll just be honest with you, that's probably the easiest for us to notice. That's not subtle. It might be tempting, but it's not subtle. But there are also those who are willing to use Christianity as a prop if it means they can conform you to their godless thoughts. This is harder to notice. This is more subtle. But there are those who present themselves as conservative or traditional that actually look a lot more like Paul's description of Romans 3. And so here's the call for each of us. Don't let your worldview get shaped by someone who does not submit to God's revealed will. Don't let the culture war suck you in and drive you mad, throw you off course. Test what you find against scripture, not your favorite cultural commentator. Take a deep breath. Remember that God's word, God's church will prevail. And this present evil age will pass. Christians think differently than others. Uh, we have a distinct way of viewing the world and life. It's a, a worldview. And it takes your intentional effort to figure out how best to do that. And so let me point you to the three tests of a worldview uh, given to us from Ronald Nash in his book, Worldviews in Conflict. You know, it's possible that you're not a Christian and you're here just kicking the tires or you think you want to talk to some people here. You don't even know what brought you in here this morning. Perhaps this will be helpful to you. But it's also helpful for Christians to help us to hold up the flame of God's word to the ideas that we encounter, to test them, 
to see if they cohere with reality and God's word. First is the coherence test. The coherence test checks the internal consistency of a worldview to see if any values or beliefs contradict other beliefs within the worldview. So, does this worldview make sense within itself? Is it logically non-contradictory? For example, a worldview that rejects God and proposes that we evolved from raw material by chance is going to have a hard time explaining why murder is immoral. If we're all just cosmic accidents, then objective morality is simply a mirage. We've all just agreed on it without any objective truth. So then, they would need to borrow from the Christian worldview that teaches that humanity has an inherent value because we were created by God in his image and after his likeness. A second test, the correspondence test, examines how well a worldview responds or corresponds with reality. So it evaluates evidence and experiences to see if the worldview matches with the world as it truly is. For example, God teaches that he created man as male and female, and that tracks with reality as we find it. A worldview that rejects God as creator would have us think that there is no inherent design in our bodies, and we get to decide whether we're male or female or neither. But observation of reality as it exists would contradict that idea. Third, a practical test. The practical test evaluates a a worldview's livability. Do the worldview's ideas stand up as a real explanation for the way that you experience life? Can they be rightly applied beyond your own experience? For example, we're told that someone can have two fathers or two mothers, but the simple fact is that a same-sex union is unable to bring about life. No one's ever actually experienced being brought into the world by two fathers or two mothers. So no one can actually live consistently with a worldview that says that we can. It just can't be lived out. This is not actually true. Writing in 1904, Herman Bovink said this, The idea of Christianity and the meaning of reality belong together like lock and key. They make sense together. And this is what we find when we test and discern what is the will of God revealed for us in his word by his spirit. This is a bold claim, isn't it? If you're not a Christian, let me invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good. If you want to talk about these things after the service, I would love to do that. You can catch me in the lobby afterwards. As we shift away from that section of doctrinal explanation of chapters 1 through 11, we're going to go into a more application-heavy section of this book. Keep these two verses in mind all the way through, Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you want to memorize a couple verses in the next couple weeks, these will be great ones. These two verses help us remember the first 11 chapters of the book, which we will need to act as a support for our obedience based on the mercies of God. We must know scripture and Christian doctrine to grow in Christ-likeness. We tell that to everyone in our new members' classes, and we tell it to everybody in our membership interviews. If you're not taking advantage of the equipping ministry classes that we offer here, let me encourage you to go ahead and do that. 9.15 on Sunday morning. Stefan this morning was helping us think through the 400-page or the 400-year gap 
of that blank page in your Bible between the Old Testament and the New. Next Sunday morning, Lucas will be walking us through an overview of the book of Matthew. And throughout the semester, we're just going to take book by book, walking through them, getting big pictures of the New Testament books. Wednesday nights, you can come at 5.30, come for the meal, stay for the teaching. We'll be going through the book of Philippians, slowly, verse by verse, a great opportunity for you to come and interact. It's a more interactive sort of a setting. And of course, you've heard about the women's Bible study that'll be starting soon. Sign up for that as soon as this class is over. Commit to having your mind renewed by the word. It's hard work. You should expect to be challenged in it. That's how it works. Dedicate yourself to it. Let me urge you. Let me, let me point to Paul's urging. Do it. Sign up. This is an important part of discipleship. Don't set the head against the heart. Sometimes we do that. We set the head against the heart as if one is more important than the other. You need Jesus in both. Sproul helpfully reminds us that God's love can only actually settle into your heart if it first has settled into your mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray.